All right, we've been we've got a new study in the book of Second Peter, which is written to a people of God facing uh, the desire to to give up or give in or just confusion over why the world is such as it is, standing in opposition to God and His ways. Um, the earlier chapter that we looked at was encouraging God's people to continue to grow in character based on the knowledge and promises of God and pointed them to the trustworthiness of his word. And now this chapter, which we'll look at over the next two weeks, is uh, addressing false teaching and false teachers that are threatening God's people. So this morning, we'll be reading God's word from Second Peter chapter 2. I'll be reading verse 1 through the first half of verse 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, if all that, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. This is the word of the Lord. In one of my favorite movies, there is a scene where a king who is a good and righteous and, and, and valiant king um, is trying to protect his people and just wants peace for his kingdom. But at, in order to keep peace, he is ignoring the attacks that are going on all around him. He's refusing to take up arms and he claims to his counselors, I will not risk open war. And one of his friends who is present says, war is upon you, whether you would risk it or not. And as Christians, perhaps we desire to be at peace with everyone. We just want to get along. But war is upon us, even if we don't recognize it, even if we're not responding to it. And God's word makes clear that this is not an unusual thing. It is instead the norm that should be expected for all God's people until his return. Because until Christ returns, we should expect opposition to his kingdom. Now last week in the verses we looked at, we, we looked at the, the source of Scripture and how it is a, a trustworthy guide of salvation, is the word for your salvation. But this week we look at a different kind of word, words of falsehood. And just as the word of God leads to salvation, we see here that words of false teaching lead to destruction. So what do we do? 
What do we do when deceivers distort the truth? What do we do when arrogant people misrepresent God and his ways? What do we do when false shepherds mislead even God's people? One thing we should not do in such situations is be surprised. Peter warns us just as Jesus warns us. And throughout Scripture, we are warned and cautioned to be on guard against falsehood. So what exactly should we expect then? What should God's people know is coming? And what sort of outcome should we expect to see from God in the end? Peter, in speaking to these questions, tells us three things we should expect. The first is that we should expect God's truth to be challenged. We should expect God's truth to be challenged. In verse 1, he says, False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. In the verses we looked at last week, we saw Peter speaking of the prophecy of scriptures and of the apostles and connecting it to the prophecy of the the Old Testament prophets who spoke. And in both cases, he showed how God is speaking through human authors and human voices to bless his people with the words that lead to their salvation. But in every case, Old Testament, New Testament, and even today, when the voice of truth speaks, another voice inevitably rises up to shout it down and attempt to take its place. Now Peter says in verse 1 that there will be false teachers among you. Now, some of you know what I'm talking about when I speak of the game Among Us. Some of you are older, like me, and you're there with the game, the party game Mafia. Same principle. In both of these games, there's a group of people, and one of you, at least, is a traitor. One of you is the bad guy, and nobody knows who it is. And you're trying to figure out who's the bad guy among us. Well, that's what Peter's saying here. He says, the evil and deception and false teaching and error are not just something out there. We have to be mindful. It might be and will be among you as well, among God's people. Because challenges to God's truth are seldom a frontal assault. Satan knew from the very beginning that simply jumping out and saying, God is wrong, don't listen to God, was not going to work. Usually it's more like what he said in the garden to Eve. Hey, did, did God actually say this? Didn't, didn't he actually mean this? Taking a part of the truth, but concealing other parts of it, and turning a half-truth into a whole deception. Paul, the apostle, when leaving a church that he had worked among for several years, and he was moving on to another field of ministry, he gathered the elders, the leaders, the overseers of that church together, and he said these words in Acts 20. He said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And yet, Paul was not so proud as to say that it was going to be someone else. He did not say that the truth was exclusive to him. He even said 
in Galatians, well, his point here, and I'm going to get to Galatians in just a minute, his point is that we should not be so loyal to personalities or to ministries that we accept distortions of the truth from them. And so Paul himself, in looking at his own ministry, said in Galatians 1 that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ, but if even we, Paul himself said, if even me, I, Paul, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we first preached to you, let him be accursed. Even Paul was so self-aware as to say, look, if I start twisting the truth, if I start deceiving you and misleading you from the truth you once heard, don't stand for it. Don't put up with it. Peter says in verse 3 that these false teachers will exploit you with false words. Okay, now there's an interesting thing that happens in the language here, in the, in the Greek that Peter is using. Uh, when, when he says false prophets, he says pseudo-prophetes. Pseudo is the prefix that means false, like a pseudonym, a false name. Just as there were, will be false teachers, and he uses that prefix again, pseudo, meaning false, fake, phony. But when he says in verse 3, they'll exploit you with false words, he doesn't use the same word. He, he, he says plastos logos, plastic words. We get the word plastic from the Greek word plastos, which means something you can shape and morph and mold and, and, and turn into a different shape as you have need. And that's what these false teachers are doing. You see, the Word of God should be something that we adapt ourselves to. We conform, we change, we shape ourselves to be what God's Word calls us to be. But these false teachers instead... Sorry, I know I hear myself cutting out here. I'm not sure what's happening. These false teachers are taking God's Word and, and shaping it like plastic. They're changing. Oh, you don't like hearing that, that you need to take up your cross and follow Jesus? Well, let me tell you how easy it is to be a Christian. You don't like hearing that everything you have is something God has entrusted to you to be used for His kingdom? Well, let me tell you how God wants to make you filthy rich. You don't like hearing that God says you, don't, you should not live a certain way? Well, let me tell you, you can live however you want. They take God's Word and they shape it and they mold it and they turn it into something different. They deceive and exploit you with false plastic words. We are warned of this in 2 Timothy 4, that a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander off into myths. In the marketplace of ideas where there's a Christian doctrine or a religious doctrine to suit whatever you want to hear, how true this is. Well, I don't like this doctrine. I don't think that's right, and I'm not comfortable with that. Let me find someone who's saying what I want to hear, and I'll follow that. You see, the truth is sometimes hard to hear, and we won't always like it. The truth sometimes makes us look or feel bad, like a doctor diagnosing what's wrong with us, telling us the truth that, hey, there's a problem here. It might make us uncomfortable. It might make us feel bad to hear that. But in the end, the truth is the best thing we could ask for because only the truth has the power to heal us. 
So Peter says in verse 1 that these false teachers speaking plastic words, they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Now that's a, it's a word that gets thrown around a lot in churches, heresy, heretic. It, it only in later centuries came to mean uh, a condemnable uh, false cult. The word as Peter's using it here means a, a different kind of teaching, a different group, a different branch, almost like we would think of a denomination today, a different form of teaching. Because different isn't always evil in itself. We embrace the broader church of God with, with whom we have many differences, but under whom we are one family of God. But what Peter's warning against here, the adjective matters, destructive heresies, differences that destroy and break us up Specifically, what they lead to in verse 1, he says, destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Now, Peter's not making a statement, a theological statement about redemption here. He's not saying that these false teachers who are under condemnation are, are redeemed. They've been saved by God. And now they're denying their master. No, this is, he's saying that those who belong to a master owe that master obedience. And these people who challenge God's truth are denying God what is due to Him. It's not an intellectual denial, it's a practical one. Like when Jesus in Luke 6 said to people, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Am I really your Lord if you're not obeying me? If we claim to belong to God but do not seek to obey Him, we deny His place in our lives. It's a form of practical atheism, which is in many ways more pernicious and problematic than real atheism. Real atheism is honest. It says, I don't believe there's a God and I'm not going to pretend to live like there is one. Practical atheism says, oh, shit. yeah, sure, I believe in God. Sure. Yeah. But I'm going to live as if I don't. I'm going to live differently. I'm going to live as if God is not true. We challenge his truth by refusing his authority in our lives and denying the master who had bought us. Note how the psalmist connects knowing truth with living it in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. This is somebody who's living as they ought, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. People of God expect His truth to be challenged, but respond to that by committing yourself to know the law and ways and truth of the Lord and living it out. Not just giving a, an intellectual assent to it, not just knowing it, but doing it. We challenge His truth when we don't live according to it. And that leads to the next thing that we're to expect in light of these false teachers. We are to expect God's truth to be challenged, but Peter also says we're, expect, we're to expect God's way to be abandoned. Verse 2, he says, Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Peter doesn't go into detail on the content of the false teaching. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't start picking apart their errors. But what he does do he goes into detail on how they live, on how they lead people's lives astray. 
And his point is this, I think, that, that he doesn't need to detail their wrong beliefs because their error is evident in what it produces. I'm going to once again point us back to earlier in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. After describing all the godly qualities that we should see in our lives, he says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you know God, if you know Christ, it should produce a certain way of living. A life of obedience that imitates Christ is the fruit, it's the natural consequence of being in Christ. Everyone who is saved by grace ought to bear the fruit and the marks of that grace, both through the Holy Spirit at work and through your own effort made possible by the Holy Spirit. This is one of the key aspects of the gospel that we talk about here and highlight a lot. That we are not saved by our good works. You are not saved by your righteous living. But being saved by God makes us able to do good works. Because you're saved, you may obey. And so while I will never say that you are saved by the good things you do, because you're saved by, by what Jesus has done, you were saved because Jesus took your place on the cross, receiving in himself your punishment that was due to you for your sin. We're not saved by our obedience or what we do, but we will say with Scripture that those who trust the death of Christ, everyone who is saved by God's free grace will show that salvation in the way they live. And when that is missing, when the evidence of that is missing, then we cannot say that they truly follow God. We have no assurance that someone is in Christ unless they are showing that in what they live. Which is why Peter is so concerned here with the absence of such obedience in the false teachers that he's warning against. In verses 2 and 3, look at what he says. Many will follow their sensuality and in their greed they will exploit you. These are the same two things that he's going to mention and we'll look at next week in verse 14. Eyes full of adultery, hearts trained in greed. Sensuality and greed. And I think it is painful and fascinating to see how true this still is today. That nearly every major scandal that I can think of that involves a, a false teacher or some leader in ministry seems to be about one of those two things, is it not? either about the misuse of money because of greed, abusing and controlling God's people for their own financial gain, or it's a sexual sin, using influence and positions of power and trust and even using God's Word to somehow justify or permit or partake in a sexual sin. Peter especially points out in verse 10, these are people who indulge defiling passions. Indulge means to, to follow after something, to kind of take direction or orders from it. If you think of a parent indulging a spoiled child, letting that child tell you everything, how it's going to be. You know, the little emperor that runs the home. That's indulgence. And, and Peter's saying these people indulge defiling passions. There's basically someone who, who does whatever they want to. If they want something, they go for it. If they crave it, they do it. They're unable or unwilling to say no to their own passions and desires. Now, desire itself is not bad. We, we're not Buddhists. 
Okay, Buddhism says that desire itself is the problem. And the path to salvation involves extinguishing your desires. That's not a Christian belief. The gospel teaches us, the Bible teaches us that desires are good. That we are to enjoy and delight in the things God has given us. He has created your desires. But as theologian Jonathan Edwards puts it, our desires, our passions are like a fire, which when you put it in its proper place, warms the whole house. He lived in the day of fireplaces, okay? But when left uncontrolled, it consumes everything. That's what our desires do. Or if you prefer a different theologian, I point you to Cookie Monster. Okay, you with me? Sesame Street, Cookie Monster. Most of us grew up with a Cookie Monster who did what? Cookie! And he just devoured the cookies and they're flying everywhere. He couldn't control himself when he saw a cookie. That's the Cookie Monster I grew up with. But did you know they've changed Cookie Monster? I, I learned this. Okay, and, and, and it, I would suggest a positive way. Maybe a positive change. Um, it's not the Cookie Monster I grew up with, but Cookie Monster now sings a song. Cookies are a sometimes food. Okay, isn't that cool? I, I'm cool with my kids learning that. that, that it's, the desire for a cookie is not bad. Just ask the Girl Scouts when they try to sell me their cookies. I keep them in business. Okay, the desire is not bad. It's the desire uncontrolled. And so these are those who indulge their defiling passions. Or, verse 10, they despise authority, which is really another way of saying the same thing. Because Peter, I don't think, is talking about human authorities here. He's not miffed that somebody's not listening to him or doing what he says. It's, it's more that he's talking about God's authority to command us and to instruct us through his word and through his church. As we're going to see next week later in the chapter, they, this tries to come off as a kind of freedom. Hey, I, I, don't, I don't have to listen to anybody. I am free from authority, from instruction, from rules, from expectations. But instead, it's an exchanging of the loving leadership of God for a slavery to something else. In verse 19, he says, They promise freedom but they themselves are slaves to corruption. Look what it's doing to them. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So to sum up, these are, these are people who speak in God's name, claim to be teaching the ways of God, and yet their words challenge God's truth and their behavior abandons God's way. And the result is this in verse 2. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. The way of truth will be blasphemed because of how they live. The psalmist in Psalm 23 said that God leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The, the way that we live shows others what kind of God we serve. I cannot highly enough recommend the, the Sunday school lesson from last week. And I'm not saying that because I taught it. Randy taught it. So I'm, yeah, I'm not... It was on taking God's name in vain, which is a, a, just a massively misunderstood idea. And, and I think it, what it really means is what Peter's talking about here. When we take God's name, we're calling ourselves by his name. We're claiming to be one of his, claiming to represent him. And when we then treat that name as if it's empty of authority and content and meaning, we live however we want, we're taking his name in vain. 
If we are loving, gracious, free of worry, respectful, generous, and kind, it shows the character of God to be like that. But if we claim to be one of God's and we are greedy or indulgent or hurtful or selfish, it portrays God as either just like that or indifferent to those things. Peter's concern is that these false teachers and false prophets are exposing God to ridicule because they take his name in vain. They're claiming to be followers and even teachers of God, and yet they've abandoned his ways to serve their own desires and appetites. And yet we should not be surprised. We expect God's truth to be challenged. We expect God's way to be abandoned. And Scripture is filled with warnings of these. But there's one more thing we need to expect that hopefully will give us more hope than those other expectations. And that is that we expect God's people to be delivered. In verse 3, Peter says, Their condemnation, these false teachers, their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. The natural question we want to ask when we are witnessing people who dishonor God and who mislead and even hurt God's people is, why hasn't God stepped in yet? Why hasn't a zap of lightning or handwriting on the wall like in the days of Daniel, why hasn't there been some intervention by God to stop evil people? And then the sneaking suspicion comes to mind that maybe God doesn't care about evil. Maybe he's not able to do anything about it. Or maybe he's not there at all. George Carlin, the comedian, in one of his routines, blasphemously invited God to strike him down. And he stood out there and said, God, if you're there, go ahead and strike me right now. And he waited for an awkward amount of time until he finally said, well, I guess that answers the question. If God's not going to do anything about it, he must not be there. God is without doubt concerned with justice and able to make it happen. It's in keeping with his character that he revealed in Exodus 34. He has steadfast love for thousands. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but he will also by no means clear the guilty. It is wrong of us to conclude that just because God hasn't punished sin yet, that he therefore won't punish it ever. Now instead, listen to how Scripture describes God's silence on the matter of sin in Romans 2. Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Peter had said that their judgment, it's not idle, it's not asleep. And in Romans 2, we see why. Why is God not yet punished? It's because he is merciful. He is patient. He is giving every chance for his enemies to repent. For those who persist and who never repent, that judgment has just been stored up and the bill will come due. But he waits and waits and mercifully waits so that grace has time to do its work and change the heart of a Saul who is a persecutor of the church to become the heart of a man who is a planter of the church 
or the, the thief on the cross who all his life was an enemy and a rebel against God and in his very final breaths comes to repent. Judgment waits. It is not idle, but judgment waits because God is merciful. And then Peter goes on to give examples, a series of divine case studies showing God's track record of punishing evil and rescuing his people. In verse 5, describes a, a story in the, the tradition of, of the Jewish people in Peter's day that God punished angels who sinned and holds them in chains until the day of judgment. Or in verse 5, how God punished the world of Noah's day while also preserving Noah and his family. And now we often miss this though. But do you know how much time passed between the announcement of God's judgment on that world and the execution of that judgment? You know, if you're reading the children's Bible, it's, you know, happy, 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 Noah built an ark. Oh, here's the ark. Oh, here's all the animals. Oh, here's the rain. It's like a turning of a page, right? 120 years. The Lord told Noah, hey, I'm not going to put up with this any longer. I know the world is in a bad shape. It's obscene what you're seeing out there, Noah. I know it. And I'm going to punish it. And I'm going to rescue you. And then Noah had to wait 120 years to see that happen. Yes, judgment is not idle. It is not sleeping, but it waits. Or in verses 6 through 8, how God punished Sodom and Gomorrah and then rescued Lot and his daughters from that after they had long endured living in and witnessing, in verse 8, we see sin, a sinful and violent city. You know, we, we tend to think that, oh my goodness, the stuff we're seeing today, the world has never been like this. The church has never been forced to see such evil in the world. You are naive to think so. Lot himself was... Go to the next verse. Next verse. There we go. Lot himself distressed in seeing the evil around him. And the Lord punished evil and delivered His people. So the church facing false teaching needed the words of verse 9 from 2 Peter 2 that God knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He's got a track record. He does it. This is what He does. And at the same time, He keeps the righteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Judgment is suspended over them. The punishment is hanging over them like Democles' sword just hanging by a thread over his dinner. Yes, it's a story from classic literature. The sword is dangling over you by a thread. Judgment will fall sooner or later. It is not idle. It is not asleep. But to those who repent, they are spared that judgment and will be delivered. If we have a hard time holding on to this, we need to look at the cross to see it more clearly. Because in the death of Jesus... In the death of Jesus, we see both God's intention to judge evil and sin and His ability to save His people. The death of Jesus is a powerful statement that God will not overlook sin. Sin is punished with death. That's why Jesus went to the cross. Our insistence on rejecting the authority of God and pursuing our own path and following our own desires puts every one of us under the same condemnation that is spoken of here as coming upon the false teachers. We deserve it just as much as them. And in Isaiah 53, in speaking of Christ, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. But the Lord has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. God will punish evil. 
But for those who are his children, those who trust in Christ, the cross doesn't just show that God punishes evil. It shows that he puts our punishment on a Savior so that we can be delivered. Noah didn't really deserve to be delivered. Lot certainly didn't deserve to be delivered. It was by the grace of God placing their condemnation on his son. Jesus didn't just die as a symbol or a martyr. He was a sacrifice for his people. And that deliverance that we look forward to and that we are told to expect is only possible because Jesus took your place in judgment. Though we challenge his truth and though we abandon his ways, the Lord has placed on him the iniquity of us all. You know, if I had a chance to go back before the worship guides were printed and give a different title to the message today, I know nobody ever really notices the title of the messages, but I, I would probably call it Snobs for the Truth. Because I was thinking about snobbery this week, as one is prone to do. And, and I think all, a lot of us, maybe all of us, can be snobs about something or other, right? You might be a snob about fashion. And you maybe like sit near the front because you can't bear to see what people behind you are wearing. Or you might be a snob about food and you hear me mention going to McDonald's and you're just like, how could you? I'm a snob about good songs. Not just good music, but good songwriting. And it's hard for me if you know, somebody asks me, hey, have you heard this song? Isn't it such a great song? And, mm-hmm. and it hurts me. Because I'm a snob about good songwriting and the way that the lyrics and the music work together to tell a story and to, to evoke a surprise reaction from you. It's just, oh, I love a good song. And I can get a bit snobby about it. And as I've been thinking about it, I'm realizing that a snob is just a lover who has grown frustrated. As Christians, we can be snobs about the truth, about good teaching. And we can get, see, a snob gets critical. A snob gets judgmental. A snob gets angry. And there's a time and a place for that when the truth is challenged and when God's word is abused. But at the heart of every snob is love. I love a good song. I get angry at bad songs because I love good songs so much. And as people of God, I I urge you, do not let your anger at falsehood, your criticism of liars and deceivers. Don't let that lead you. Be led instead by the love that is behind that anger, a love for God and for his truth and his ways, a love that will in the end be vindicated, that will swallow up falsehood. No one was ever converted to good fashion by the criticism of a fashion snob. Oh, you're right, I probably should dress nicer. You know, Randy, for all his opinions on steak, would not through his criticism convince me to eat it the way he likes it. That's not going to work. And all my snobbery about music is not going to convince you to listen to the artists that I like and to stop listening to the junk you listen to. (laughs) What converts, what draws people in and away from what is bad is, is seeing the love of a worshiper. Seeing someone so so taken up by a good flavor or a good movie or a good whatever that they just want to understand that. They want to understand where that joy comes from, where that passion is. People of God love the truth. 
love God and his ways. Yes, hate falsehood, of course. Stand against it. But a hundred critical blog posts and social media posts criticizing falsehood and false teaching do not have the power of one believer who is so radiant in their love of God and His ways, saved by His grace, satisfied in Him and filled with joy. They, they can't hold a candle to the power of one loving worshiper. People of God, I would urge you today in the face of falsehood, which we are taught to expect, do not be so caught up and angry and embittered and fearful and worried and frustrated by the way things are. Be drawn and caught up instead by the promise of how they will be. Through the love of God our Savior, all will be well. Let that joy let that conviction, let that radiance draw others away from falsehood and into the truth of God today. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we love your word. We love your truth. We love the promise that it is to us. Fill us with a passionate love for these things such that we do not need to speak harshly against falsehood because the beauty of your truth seen in us will draw men and women unto you. We pray your truth will be vindicated, that the wrong will fail and the right will prevail. We know these things are coming. Teach us to hold fast to your truth until that day, we pray. Amen.